Well, good morning, Pillar family. Pastor Canaan here. Uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Malachi entitled True Worship. So if you could, please go ahead in your copy of God's word and open up to the book of Malachi as we're going to look at chapter three, verses seven through twelve. Malachi chapter 3, verse 7 through 12. And as you're looking for that, let me also just let you know that as always, we provide a, a cross-reference sheet for some of the verses that uh, I may refer to in this morning's sermon. So please go ahead at your leisure and download that sheet. Look at that sheet as I will be referring to it throughout the sermon. Um, and there may be some verses that may be missing from that because I may have added it later or it may have come, uh, come in the middle of the sermon. Um, but that sheet will be a good reference and you can add and subtract to it as you want in your own way. Uh, this morning, God is going to be calling us to return to the faithful after flirting with the fickle. He's going to be calling us to return to the faithful. Whew, I like that. Return to the faithful after flirting with the fickle. That if we return to God who is faithful, he will return to us. And so let's pray and then let's dive in to the text. Father, thank you for allowing us the blessed opportunity to gather via this live stream. Thank you for the hands and the feet and the, and the mechanisms that you've provided in order to provide this service for your people. I know that if you had left it up to me alone, Lord, that uh, our people would struggle to hear the word of God Sunday after Sunday in this particular state that we are in, in this uh, circumstance that we are finding ourselves in. Um, but you are faithful. And you've provided your people to serve your people to your glory. And uh, we get to enjoy the fruits of the skills and labor of men and women who are willing to give of themselves for this. And so, Lord, I want to thank you and salute all those brothers and sisters who served one another in order to make this service possible. I want to salute those who served one another these last few days as the power was out across the state. Uh, the, the, the faithful brethren who risked their lives in driving from this end of the city to that end of the city or the people who were willing to, to load up other families in their homes or those who are able to give out their own resources that others may have resources to live on. Now, Lord, you did a lot of good loving on people through your people this week. It was a good testament of the love of the church. And I'm thankful that, uh, that our people had our people to lean on. And I, I pray that that was the case with all the churches in this great state. And I pray that you would um, um, have grown and knit families closer together as a result. Lord, now as we come to your word, I pray that you would open up my eyes, open up the eyes of those listening, open up the eyes of those watching, that they would hear from you and that they would be compelled to turn away from that which is fickle, that which is fleeting, that which fades easy and turn towards that which is faithful, that which endures for eternity. Lord, turn our hearts to you. Lead us closer to you. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've had a tough go of it this past week, these last couple weeks. <laughs> We've had a tough go of it this past year and, 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 and post year before that. Um, let's face it. We're living in a time for the record books. Uh, these are unprecedented times that we are living in right now. And it's taken a toll 
on us in many ways. And in particular, I've been able to glean that it's taken a toll on many of our faiths. Uh, For some of us, these past week, this past year, year and a half, um, has resulted in us clinging to Jesus more than we ever have. And I praise God. He's the right one to cling to in the midst of what we've been experiencing these past week and year and, and year and a half. But for others of us, some of you perhaps, you have been struggling with your faith ever since um, maybe the beginning of the pandemic, or maybe it was the beginning of a lot of the racial riots and tensions, or maybe it was, well, I don't know when the beginning of that was, it was a long time ago, but the beginning of, of the resurgence of it um, happening and in, in, in a lot of it happening here in Fort Worth. Um, a lot of people have been struggling and the temptation is, uh, the temptation is that we turn away from Jesus in the midst of a tough season. But we don't want people turning away from Jesus in the midst of a tough season. We want them turning towards him in the midst of a tough season. Uh, you may not recognize it, uh, but your heart is turning. You may not recognize that your heart is turning away from God explicitly, but there are tellers, there are manifestations, there are symptoms of your heart turning away that you may not be aware of. And this morning, we're going to see some of those manifestations in the people of Judah, as well as God's plea for the people of Judah to return to him. Turning to Jesus in the midst of tough times, in the midst of uncertainties, is the only prudent option. And we're going to see that from this morning's text. Let's first take a look at the situation happening around Malachi in chapter three, and we're going to learn some new things, perhaps, about what's happening to the people here uh, in, in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter three. Look with me at the beginning of verse seven. Just just the first half of verse seven. Verse seven is very long. It says, since the days of your ancestors, you have been you have turned from my statues. You have not kept them. Let's stop right there. All throughout the Old Testament, there have been uh, uh, cyclical situations where the people of God turn from turn their hearts from God and worship to worship other things. We see this over and over again in the Old Testament and they worship things called idols. An idol is anything that we give the substance of our life to or anything that we ascribe glory to. That can be an idol, anything that we ascribe glory to or give the substance of our life to other than God. Now, practically, you can turn to almost any book in the Old Testament and find God's people meandering away from worshiping God towards worshiping other things, toward giving glory to to something other than God or giving their life to something other than God. I mean, we find that in the very first pages of the Bible and we find it over and over again with God's people. And even now, many of us, many of God's people find ourselves riddled with unbelief and a lack of faith and trust in God. That unbelief manifests itself in certain ways. And maybe one of these ways I'm going to list is your way or your 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 teller, your symptom that your heart is straying away from God. Some of you stop participating in corporate worship. Some of you stop reading God's word altogether. Some of you cease praying. Like those those are expected ways, right? Where maybe our hearts starting to meander a little bit. Some of us start unwittingly living by the mantra that God helps those who help themselves. And that mantra is not biblical, by the way, but our actions will tell whether or not we are actively living out 
that mantra. When we're dependent and trusting on our own strength and our own abilities, then we're actually living out this mantra that God helps those who help themselves. And you see that in a lack of prayer, because when you're prayerless, you're no longer dependent. And when you're not dependent on God, you're dependent on you. And when you're dependent on you, you're helping yourself. And then your hope, your, your, uh, your, your abstract intellectual hope is that God will help you because you've helped yourself. But what we'll see from the people of Judah in this passage is probably the most common of all the ways that the symptoms of our heart show our devotion towards God. And I mean that in terms of not if you were ignorant to this information, but that you knew this information and you chose to do nothing with it. This is also one of the most abused texts in, in the Bible. So we got to deal with this text very carefully because some would preach it in such a way that they would get rich off the backs of God's people and leave their people in a lurch themselves. And that is not the heart of this text. The heart of this text is the heart of people. It just so happens that there's a particular symptom that's being shown that God addresses in order to call them back to himself. Look at Malachi chapter three, the end of verse seven and the beginning of verse eight. It says, since the days of our ancestors, you have turned away from my statutes. You have not kept them. Then this is what he says. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Stop there. This is the point of this morning's passage. OK, this is the imperative command of the passage. God says, return, come back to me. OK, that's the point of the passage. Come back to me. He wants his people close to him. He wants them in holy proximity to them. The ultimate blessing they can receive as a result of turning toward God is holy closeness with God. Do you know somebody that you admire greatly? Somebody who you really look up to? Somebody who you love to be in their presence and you don't want anything from them other than to sit at their feet and enjoy their company. Well, that is like a minute 1% kind of an illustration or, or a way of understanding uh, the blessings that come with simply being close in proximity with God. Verse seven says, return to me and then look at the, the requisite re return, the blessing that happens. Return to me and then he says, and I will return to you. And remember last week, that's what they wanted. They wanted God back with them. And so he says, oh, you want me back? Well, you have to come back to me because you have strayed. And once you come back to base, I will be there. I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. This should remind us of James chapter four, verse eight. You see that in your cross reference sheet where it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, here is the manifestation of Judah's heart being far from God. You ready? Verses seven and eight. Here's the manifestation of it. Verse eight, I'm sorry. Or seven, eight, the end of seven, beginning of eight. Yet you ask, how can we return? Verse eight. Will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? How do you rob me? I mean, how do we rob you, you ask? by not making the payments of the 10th and the contributions. Stop there. 
So again, we've stumbled upon another one of those dialogues between God and his people, just like we've seen elsewhere in Malachi. And God's command to them is to come home and to return to him. And they ask him, how, right? They say, how do we return? But before God answers how they return in specific, he wants to show them and highlight the sinful manifestation of their heart being turned far from him. It's almost like he wants to convince them of where they are before he answers the how. Because they have to understand where they are first. They have to have some kind of spatial understanding. This is where I am and this is where I need to be. He tells them that they're robbing him by not giving what the law requires them to give financially. And you'll find that, and it's not in your cross-reference sheet, you'll find that in in Genesis, this is pre-law, Genesis 14 and Genesis 28, and then you'll find it in Leviticus 27, Deuteronomy 14, Numbers 18. The law required that people would give a tenth of their earnings to God. This is called a tithe. This is where we get the idea of 10%, right? The tithe. In reality, these people gave way more than 10%. By the end of their giving, it was more like 25% of their total assets or giving was going unto the work of God. Suffice it to say that, that the people of Judah here were giving far less than the full amount in any front or category, whatever the categories it was. The tithe was meant to care for the priests in the temple. Kind of how like your giving goes to care for your pastors and the work of the church so that there's no one burden laid upon one one person. And in a real sense, people tend to talk with their pocketbooks. People tend to talk with their wallets. People tend to keep money and give money based on whether or not they believe in something or they don't. Or they want to pursue something or they don't. Now, the reasons they didn't give, the reasons why the people of Judah didn't give are multifaceted, to say the least. Okay, there there are many, but this passage is highlighting one specific way. And I want to simplify this by reading verse nine and gaining a context clue from verse nine. I hope you're following me. I can't see your face. Verse nine, chapter three. God says, you are suffering under a curse. Yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Stop there. God says they're suffering under a curse. Now, the first thought you should say is, what curse, right? This is most likely a reference to Deuteronomy 28. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty convinced it's a reference to Deuteronomy 28, which tells us that the, that the people of God will receive blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Now, remember, this is a part of the Old Covenant. And I don't know if you remember, but a few weeks ago, I talked about the difference between the old covenant and a new covenant. I gave you differences in the types of covenant. There was a unilateral covenant, right? Where one, one, where there's one actor who has to hold up their end of the bargain and both parties are blessed. And then there's a bilateral covenant where both parties have to hold up their end of the bargain. And this particular covenant where the people of Judah are, this is a bilateral situation. This is a bilateral agreement between them and God. Both parties have to hold up their end of the bargain. And if you recall, I used the example of Abraham cutting in half the animals and leaving them apart. And then the, 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 the pot of fire going through the animals. And then I quoted a passage from Jeremiah that spoke of, let it be done to me as it is these animals if one, uh, to us if one of us do not hold up this end of the bargain. 
right? And so there is consequences for not holding up your end of the bargain in a bilateral covenant. Us, us at Pillar Church, us in, this, in the New Testament, New, New Covenant era, we're no longer under that covenant, but, but the people of Judah are under this covenant. The people during Malachi's day are, and they're breaking their covenant, right? And if they're breaking their covenant, that means that there's consequences for breaking the covenant. Now, we won't read all that the curse entails, but look at your cross-reference sheet. We're going to read some excerpts from it so that you can gain a fuller understanding of what this meant Deuteronomy 28, it's in your cross-reference sheet. We're going to look at the first set. It's verses 1 through 10. We're going to skip a few verses in between there. It says, Now, now look at these next four words carefully. If you faithfully obey. Okay, that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the, 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 what's it called? I lost words. That's the standard there. If you faithfully obey the Lord your God. And are careful to follow all his commands I am giving you today. The Lord, your God, will put you far above the other nations, or the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come and overtake you because you obey the Lord, your God. Verse 3. You will be blessed in the city and you will be blessed in the country. Your offspring will be blessed in your land, your land's produce and the offering of your livestock, including the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks, skipping to verse seven, the Lord will cause the enemy, your enemies, the Lord will cause the enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will march out against you from one direction, but they will flee from you in seven directions. What's that indicating? That they're scattered, right? That you, you just dismantled these people. Verse eight, the Lord will grant you a blessing in your barns and on everything you do. He will bless you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you in his holy people as he swore to do. If you obey the commands, the Lord God, the Lord your God, and walk in his ways. Look at verse 10. Remember verse 10. Then all the peoples of the earth will see that you bear the Lord's name and they will stand in awe of you. Stop there. Remember verse 10, then all the peoples of the earth will see that you bear the Lord's name and they will stand in awe of you. But the people of Judah here are described as not obeying and doing all that God has commanded, but they're, they're, they're being uh, described as robbing God, right? And so they're not doing all that God has commanded them because they're actively robbing God. And so the second half of Deuteronomy 28 is actually applying to them right now. And here's what they get for not obeying. Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 15, it says, but if you do not obey the Lord, your God, by carefully following all his commands and statutes, I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Verse 18. Now your offspring will be cursed in your land's produce and the young of your herds, the newborn of your flocks. Verse 20, the Lord will send against you curses, confusion and rebuke in everything you do until you are destroyed and quickly perish because of the wickedness of your actions in abandoning me. Remember those last words and it continues in abandoning me. Now, if you want to get a fuller, broader understanding of all that the curse entailed, you can read all of Deuteronomy 28. But the bottom line here is that this, um, 
this curse is fulfilled in the exile to Babylon and Assyria in Assyria for the people of Judah and the people of Israel. See, even though now they are free from Babylonian captivity, they're free from the Babylon, from Babylonian rule. They're still spiritually bound and broken as a result of their bondage and they're experiencing severe trauma. Okay, this is important to remember as to what God is doing. God is laying the case down and I'm trying to explain to you what's happening with these people, that there was a covenant that they broke. They no longer gave to God when he called them to give. And now they're experiencing curses. And the, and the, the, the way the curse came, came about was that the Babylonians would come and they would take people into exile to live under their bondage, under their yoke. And now the people are jacked up. Now the people have severe trauma. And you know what severe trauma is like. Have you ever seen it in the movies where somebody experiences a severe trauma and then as a result of that severe trauma, they have like innate and, and, and weird manifestations of it. Like they hoard things or they have oversensitivity or they're overprotective because of what they experienced in the past. Sometimes we see like the movies where people have refused food for like half their life. And then all of a sudden they're set free and they get a plate of food. But now they're like going to defend this plate with all their life because they don't know when the next plate is coming. They got trauma. They're jacked up. Or maybe you saw your child lose their life. And now you have this sense of protection and overprotection for the child that you do still have. And you're like, ain't nothing going to happen to this baby. And you're like, you, you, bubble, you, you embubble that child. Why? Because you've experienced a severe trauma and it's natural to have a reaction or an overreaction to a trauma. Well, it's similar here for the people of Judah. They experienced a 70 year long trauma. They were exiled in Babylon for 70 years. The difference here is that this trauma was a self-induced trauma because of their disobedience and belief and unbelief. Now, admittedly, there's many traumas that are self-induced. We know that. But this one's unique. And here's why I'm going to try to make it as clear as I can. This trauma is unique and this situation is unique because it is induced by the very thing that they're doing to rid themselves of the trauma. Let me say that again. This situation is unique because, they're in, because it's induced by the very thing that they're doing to rid themselves of the trauma. Let's, let me see if I can explain a little bit further what this might mean. You see, the people are guilty of robbing God, not giving their, their, their full tenth in part because of the trauma they've experienced. 70 years under being under the yoke of another nation, right? They're in, they're in spiritual, emotional, mental, and, and financial ruin, right? Deuteronomy 28, 48 says this. It says, you will serve your enemies that the Lord will send against you in famine, thirst, nakedness, and lack of everything. Okay, imagine that situation. You're serving your enemies in famine, thirst, nakedness, and lack of everything. So I want you to put yourself there and imagine now that you got set free and now you're back in your homeland and you begin to build your own shops and businesses. What is going to be the natural consequence of the trauma you experience of living your whole life in that circumstance? You're going to hoard, right? Everything you get, you're going to keep. You're going to hold it tight. Nothing can get out of your sight because you don't know when the next uh, agent of God's wrath is coming. Right. So you're, you're, you're shook. You're, you're going to hold it. They're going to you're going to engage in a sinful self-preservation. Now, just to be clear, because of the discussions I've had throughout the week, not all self-preservation is sinful. OK, we, we all lock our doors at night. We all drive slow on the ice. 
We all don't eat things that we're allergic to, right? We all get bank accounts and save our money so that we can change the, the style or living situation that we're in. That's not sinful self-preservation. Sinful self-preservation or self-preservation becomes sinful when we abandon God in order to attain it. Okay, self-preservation becomes sinful when we have to abandon God in order to attain it. Keep, keep with me. It's almost like a natural reaction to abandon things that we don't believe will see us through a particular situation. Okay, I want to give you an example from the nautical world, an example from, from being on, a, on the sea. When you're on a ship and you're experiencing uh, a tempest, a tempestuous winds and waves, and storms, right? And the ship is beginning to rock violently, right? What do we know of the people on board to do at that particular point? When they feel like there's only a few last resorts left, they begin to what? They begin to jettison their cargo, right? They begin to throw the cargo off the side of the boat. Now there's two reasons, two primary reasons, why they throw the cargo, the stuff that they came with, the stuff that they wanted, the stuff that they thought they were gonna do life with, there's two reasons why they throw it off the side of the boat. One is to give it better stability because oftentimes during shaking and moving, things begin to slide and move and it, the boat becomes unbalanced. In fact, many boats are imbalanced anyway. And so they begin to throw the stuff off the boat to get it back at, at zero balance. But the second thing reason is they want to lift the depth of the keel in the hull in the water so that they have less of a chance of running aground far too far away from, from the shoreline. Right. So they want to gain balance and stability and they want to lift the hull and the keel out of the water as high as possible, which means by lighting the load, the boat will rise a little bit higher. Thus, if they run aground, they're going to run aground close to the shore, which means they can swim to the, to the shoreline. OK. And so basically, don't miss the principle in the analogy. They're throwing overboard everything that they don't think they need for survival. OK, their their objective is to survive the, the right now situation and they're throwing overboard anything they don't think is necessary for survival. And we do the same thing. See, one of the evidences of our faith is seen in what we abandon in times of crisis or in times of trouble. And for a great many of us, the first thing we abandon is God. This is exactly what the people of Judah are guilty of doing. They're abandoning God. See, it's what got them in trouble in the first place. Look at verse nine again. It said, you are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. They were treating God or not acknowledging God or giving God less than before the Babylonians came. It was the result. The Babylonians was the result of that action. They were hoarding. They were not doing what the law commanded. And then they go into exile. They come back home and they think because of the trauma that I'm going to hoard everything I have. Because if I hoard everything I have and give God the sloppy leftovers, I'll be able to endure the curse. They abandoned God, got punished, and then abandoned God again to fix it. Y'all see that? They trusted in something other than God. They received a curse as a result. And now they're, and now they're trying to endure the curse by trusting in something other than God again. My man Bizzle said it the best. If the streets is the problem, it can't be the answer. And if trusting, and if trusting something other than God was the problem, it can't simultaneously be the answer. They seem to think that by selling the, the, by gaining profit by selling the good animals that they're going to be able to sustain themselves 
longer than if they were to give those good animals to God as a sacrifice. Because in their mind, they're thinking, if I give these good animals to God, I won't make a profit from selling them. And I need a profit to live. And so I'll give God trash the lame animals that we see in Malachi chapter one, I'll give him these lame animals instead, and he won't know the never he won't know the, the the difference. Even though these people would know what it said in the book of Leviticus that we are to give him an unblemished, spotless lamb, the, the, the most perfect one we have in our fold, right? Or or sheep or whatever the sacrifice was. They're trusting in their financial situation or their own ingenuity to save them rather than trusting in the God who gives them life. At this point, I want to quote my pastor friend, Russell McCutcheon. This is what they forgot. They forgot that God got cheese. They forgot that God got money. Rather, they, they, they trust their own ingenuity and in making money at the expense of the God who supplies all of our needs. You see, the manifestation of their hearts being far from God is seen in their trusting in wealth rather than trusting in God for life. But only God excuse me, but only God can save them from their situation. And that's a, a principle that we need to glean and heed from this text. Many of us have a tendency to abandon God and to trust in some man-made currency or some man-made reality to save us. When in reality, all money is God's money. And there's no amount of money that can save us from our innermost issues. How many of you have been struggling this past week? in year with your faith and your inclination was to turn from God. And I, I want to just ask you this question, what, what you turn into? Like, wh what is it that you're going to cook up that's so much better than what the sovereign orchestrator of all things can do? What is it that you think that you're going to be able to, to put together that your master plan, your master plans don't ever work, bro. But you want to put together some master plan devoid of God and say, oh, well, I know he says to do this, but I'm struggling to believe and trust him right now. So I'm going to go and do this, this thing differently. I'm going to go do this thing my way. It's, it's like a, a natural knee jerk reaction this is to abandon the things we don't think will help us survive. And what that's doing is it's showing us the fidelity of our faith in him. If he's so easily abandoned by us then we need to reevaluate the level of depth of our trust in him because we can sing until our face turn blue that we trust him. But when the, when, when the rubber hits the road, that's, what's going to be the teller. That's, what's going to be the, the, the indicator of where, what we are trusting, what our hearts inclination is to lean toward what God has said and what God has promised or to lean toward what we can cook up because we're afraid God won't come through. This is where the people of Judah are. They're not giving the full tenth. They're hoarding the money because they're trying to sustain themselves. But God knows their situation. In fact, he's the one that called Babylon down to be the, the, uh, uh, the hand of judgment for him. And, and he's the one that released them back into, into, into the, the promised land. He knows what's up. And yet he didn't change his rules based on their circumstances. Rather, their circumstances would change based on them obeying what God has said and God providing for them despite their circumstances. People need to remember and realize, and I'm calling you to remember and realize that proximity to Jesus is what gets you through at the end of the day. You see, you're flirting with, you, you think it's the money. The money's good. God uses the money. The money can, can help us, but it's not the money that gets us through at the end of the day. 
Proximity to Jesus is what got the apostles and their disciples through when it was persecution going down through Nero and the other Roman emperors. Proximity to Jesus is what got my ancestors through 400 years of slavery and oppression. It wasn't anything but proximity to Jesus that allowed them to endure and not the European uh, uh, version of Jesus, but the Jesus who the apostles, the Jesus and the apostles whose teaching would travel down to North Africa prior, but prior, prior to it going back up to Europe and then being taken and perverted through American plantation owners. It was proximity to Jesus that got you through the difficult situation years back. It's proximity to Jesus that's sustaining you right now. You don't need to move away from Jesus. You need to move towards Jesus. I remember somebody asked me when the school shootings were, 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 were more in the news, where's God? All these school shootings are happening. Where's God? I'm like, I don't know. Y'all kicked him out of the school like 10 years, 15 years ago. I don't know. Y'all booted him. I don't know where he is. The problem is we moved away from him rather than moving towards him. We didn't trust him to supply our needs. And so we abandoned him. And we're going to see more about abandoning God. And is he worth it next week? Because the passage will lead us there. But God wants to remind these people that he has and can supply all that they need. Need. Now, to be clear, we in the New Testament, under the New Covenant at Pillar Church, we practice something called grace-based giving because we believe that we no longer need to practice because we are under a New Covenant, the Old Covenant version of the tithe. And you'll see that in your cross-reference sheet where I give several different uh, examples of what this grace-based giving means along with scripture references. But suffice it to say, uh, when we talk about money, when we talk about finances and wealth, it's, it's, it's tricky business. The love of money or over-trusting money can lead to all kinds of evil and pangs, right? First Timothy 6.10. But money and our wealth tells us more about us than we'd like to admit. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's part of the key of today's passage. Where their treasure is, is also where their heart is. And this is precisely why Judah tells and this is precisely why God tells Judah to return to him by start and starting to return to him by giving the full tenth. Let me restate that again because I, I got confused in my own words. God is calling them to return to the to return to him by giving the full tenth, because by giving the full tenth, they're going to be that's going to be an indicator as to what their heart is trusting in. If they give the full tenth, knowing the circumstances they're in, they're no longer trusting in the finances from selling the sheep and the goats. They're trusting in the God who got cheese and is able to sustain them. So he says, give the full tenth and that will be proof positive that your heart, your treasure is with me and not in this. Whatever the material wealth may be. Look at Malachi chapter three, starting at verse seven through through uh, through ten. It says, since the days of your ancestors, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Verse eight. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you? You ask by not making the payments of the tenth of the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet the whole nation are still robbing me. Verse 10. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that my bring the whole tenth into the stores so that there may be food in my house. 
Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. Now, this is where it starts to get fishy and dicey with some of these false teachers out there trying to get rich. Because there's not a definitive, singular method to interpret what the blessing is. They abuse this text. This is how you know. If the blessing is only you give to God or you give to the, the, the church and you're going to keep mounds of cash as a result, then we know that to be false because there are people all over this world who have given all they got and they have not received mountains of cash in response to this blessing. And so we know it can't mean that. Although God may do that for some people, it's not 100% that he means that, which means we can't be dogmatic that the blessing means that he's going to give you a billion dollars for giving whatever amount of money you just gave to X ministry. They got to be bigger than that. The blessing has to match the beginning of the passage in verse seven, where it says, if you return to me, I will return to you somewhere. The blessing has to deal with the reality of our spiritual fidelity and proximity to God. The blessing can't just be you get money for giving money. The blessing has to be you get me for returning to me. And then there's benefits that come with that as well. You see, Nehemiah chapter 13, God is upset with the people of God because they stopped giving their tithe to the temple. And so what that did is it caused the priests to have to go back to their fields and work their fields in order to make a living for themselves and their family. And if the priests have to go back to the fields, that means that they don't have the bandwidth to lead God's people, which means God's people begin to get into disarray because they don't have any spiritual leadership to lead them closer to God. And what a blessing it would have been. And this is why Nehemiah helped to reinstitute the, the idea. If everybody was to just give their due, then the priests would be able to do their job and the nation would be in a better situation because the priests could focus all their attention on the work of the ministry, the people and the word of God, rather than figuring out where they're going to get their next meal from. That's even part and parcel with the role of an elder in the New Testament, Acts chapter six, verse four, the word of God, people in prayer. But the only way the elder gets to do his job is that the people of God help sustain that elder in order to do that job. Judah, if Judah was more faithful as a nation, the priests would have been able to be more faithful in leading them closer to God. And God would have opened up the storehouse of blessing and pouring out himself on the people, the leaders and, and the leaders and the priests. Now, all that being said, there is an agricultural reality to their repentance, too, because the text tells us so in verse 11. He says, I will rebuke the devourer. That's probably an indication that there was some kind of locust or some kind of drought or some kind of famine or something going on at this particular time. He says, I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and the vine of your field and will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Verse 12, last verse. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. Now, I want you to remember that that's part of the blessing that you find in Deuteronomy 28, verse 10, right? Malachi 3.12 matches Deuteronomy 28.10. Then all the peoples of the earth will see you and bear the Lord's name and they will stand in awe of you. Consider their repentance the key to reversing the curse. Pillar Church, I want you to 
look back in your life and see what it is that is a manifestation or a symptom of your heart turning far from God. In our passage today, we see that the the desire for sinful self-preservation has caused these people to turn their hearts away from God to preserve them toward their own ingenuity to preserve them. And we do a similar thing in different ways and in different forms. And I want you even tonight, maybe you talk with your spouse about it, but what are some ways, what are some symptoms that show whether or not your heart is far from God or you're getting closer to him? You see, 2000 years ago, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live perfection of a life, to die upon a cross. He rose on the third day that he may quicken us, give us spiritual life. And now we are able to grow close to God and worship God in spirit and in truth because of his work. It says in Galatians 3.13 that Jesus became a curse on our behalf. And the only way to reverse whatever curse is that if we repent and turn unto him by grace through faith, that we too can be saved and that we can grow closer in proximity to Jesus. And at the end of the day, that is the only thing that is going to sustain you. You spent your life chasing other things and have still felt empty, still felt confused, still felt lost. But it's funny when we get in. When we get in the same room with, with the Lord, when, we, when we're in close proximity to Jesus, all of that tends to just fall off for a moment. And we just feel fulfilled in him, satisfied in him. I'm going to call you to this. I want to call you to not abandon God during your hard circumstances, your hard times. These times we're living in right now. Abandoning God is not the prudent answer. Rather, do what the people of Judah didn't do. Pursue a holy proximity to Jesus. Turn again to him and he will turn to you. This isn't Canaan's promise to you. This is God's promise to you. So you go ahead and take that check check to the bank. Father, thank you for this long text uh, that that we preached today. Um, There's so much more richness in it than I was able to pull out of it. But I pray that the people of God would spend time with the text and that they would glean from it so many riches that their souls would be overwhelmed with a sense of your with a sense of not only your presence, but of your love for them because of how you treat them, your grace and your mercy towards them. Lord God, would you lead us closer to you and would we would we yearn and crave your uh, proximity to Jesus? Uh, fill us with this. Grant us this in Jesus name. Amen. Before we go, before we y'all sign off, I just want to remind you of a couple of things. Um, one is on, uh, we pray corporately as a church two times. We pray Wednesday at 9 a.m. And we pray usually when we meet in person at 915 uh, at wherever we're meeting. And we want to invite you to join us for prayer. And so 9 a.m., if you sign up on the website under the subscribe button in the footer, uh, you'll put in your phone number. You'll begin to receive our text messages. And we send out a text reminder every week for you to join us in corp in prayer. And we have people on there and it's usually led by Pastor Eric and he'll lead us in praying for whatever it is that the Lord is leading us to pray for. And then at 915 on Sunday mornings, we generally come together to pray and it'll be a good practice for you to just start praying in your home if we're digital at that point. Um, praying uh, for God's blessing on the service and on the message for him to fix all of our plans because that's what God does. We, we think we know what we want and then he comes and he fixes it, right? And so we, we do that. I also want to remind you that we have discipleship groups uh, here at Pillar Church. You can find that at pillar.church. Please find a group and join a group and get into closer proximity with God's people. I also want to remind you 
that we have membership class uh, coming up in March, I want to say. We have two membership classes. I think it's the second and third Saturday of March, but you'll find that information at pillar.church under the events tab. And lastly, if you want to give to the ministry and the work at Pillar Church, you can do that also at pillar.church. Or you can text an amount, but I don't remember the text number. So how about you give it on the website? Uh, By God's grace, I pray that you were blessed and that God has led you closer to him.